Welcome, everyone. Uh, we are having an interesting show today. Uh, the author is Dick Russell. He has written a book called The Real RFK Jr., Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And he, uh, you know, I think everyone understands that uh, Mr. Kennedy has been sort of marginalized for quite some time, but is being taken rather seriously right now in the face of some of the revelations uh, in the post-COVID world that we live in right now. And Dick Russell uses source documents, um, Kennedy's personal journals, to uh, write a story about who this man is, and we're interested in finding out more. When I get back after this brief break, this brief interlude, I will tell you about the other books that Mr. Russell has written. But right now, let's get to it. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. I want to share with you a teeth whitening system that goes beyond merely enhancing your smile. Primal Life Organics Real White Teeth Whitening System offers convenience and rapid results without harsh chemicals. Light. Blue light for whitening. Red light for gum and oral hygiene. And you can just do both if you wish. Works naturally, promoting gum healing, tooth remineralization. Gives you a brighter and a healthier smile. Again, no peroxide involved. Consistent usage yields remarkable results. Take this opportunity to transform your smile and at the same time, optimize your oral health. Aim for five times a week for the best outcomes. Discover more about this remarkable teeth whitening system and other products at drdrew.com primal today. That again is drdrew.com P-R-I-M-A-L. Be sure to use that link for 60% off drdrew.com P-R-I-M-A-L. Do it today for 60% off. You can spend thousands of dollars trying to look a few years younger, or you can skip all of that hassle and go with what works. Genucel Skincare. Genucel is the secret to better skin. In fact, you might have witnessed the astonishing effects of Genucel during a recent unplanned moment on our show. When just a little Genucel XV restored my skin within minutes right before your eyes. That's how fast these products work. I know I'm a snob about the products I use on my face. Everybody knows it. Every time I go to the dermatologist's office, they're just rows and rows of different creams. And then when I get to the counter, they're overpriced. All kinds of products that you can all find at GenuCell.com. Susan and I love GenuCell so much, we've created our own bundles so you can try our favorite anti-wrinkle treatments, correcting serums, and ultra-retinol creams. Just go to GenuCell.com Drew. Use the code Drew for an extra discount and free priority shipping. Again, that is genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash D-R-E-W. All right, as I said, we are very excited about our guest today, Dick Russell. He's written this book, The Real RFK Jr. Dick Russell is an investigative journalist. Uh, he's an author of 15 books, including three New York Times bestsellers. He co-authored a book with Jesse Ventura, uh, Book of the Year, Eye of the Whale, uh, in 2001. His book, The Man Who Knew Too Much, pr uh, probes the assassination of pre President John F. Kennedy. So 
it's interesting that the Kennedys have been in his crosshairs more than once. And of course, it is Wednesday, so Dr. Kelly Victory is here. She has read his book carefully, and she's got a, a head of steam on her. So we'll get her in here in just a couple minutes. But first, let me welcome Dick Russell. Welcome, Dick. Thanks so much, Dr. Drew. Good to be with you today. So, I, you know, the usual questions to, to get things going, uh, how did you get interested in RFK? And, you know, he's somebody that has been marginalized, even by his own family. I was doing a public event with Patrick Kennedy recently, and he took a shot at him. <laughs> I thought, wow, they're, yeah. they're all, even his own family has marginalized him. And uh, I, I had a conversation with him about a month ago on this show where we didn't mention vaccines in an hour and almost an hour and a half conversation. I didn't need to talk about vaccines. He has he has tons of other really interesting ideas and experiences he's been through. And I, I found that more interesting than any of these. I, I think the vaccine thing that you know people think he's gotten off the rail with may be best left somewhere else while he runs for president. But why did you go for him and what did you learn? Yeah, well, you know, I've known Bobby for more than 20 years. We met uh, back in 1998 when I was working on a book called Eye of the Whale, which was about the California gray whales. And I eventually traced their migration all the way from Mexico's Baja, California, all the way to Russia. But at the time, he was very involved as an environmental attorney in fighting to save this uh, salt works, well, this lagoon in Mexico, Baja, California, where the gray whales came to give birth every year from this industrial salt works that evolved, would have altered their habitat you know, forever. And so uh, I was working on a book about it. I interviewed him at his home in New York. We started to get to know each other. We discovered we had common interests in not just whales, but in fishing and the environment. And so I interviewed him again for a book I did on fighting to save a fish about the Atlantic striped bass. And then we, we just started working together on different things uh, through the years. Did a piece about the 2004 election, which uh, we'd uncovered uh, was, was basically stolen uh, by these votes being transferred out of Ohio to, uh, to a place in the South by computer. Anyway, um, and then later he wrote the introduction to uh, two of my two volumes of books that I did about climate change. And, uh, and then the reason I decided to write the biography was, was neither his idea nor mine, uh, but it came from the publisher and people who'd gone to Skyhorse Publishing and said, you know, shouldn't there be a real book about about Bobby and, and his many accomplishments in the environmental world because, you know, he was just being torn apart by the by the big media during the pandemic and and unjustifiably so. I mean, he was being accused of all kinds of things. He was uh, labeled an anti-vaxxer and a disinformation expert and a conspiracy theorist. And, you know, I knew that was none of that was true and uh, th that I'd been, you know, keeping up with, with what he'd been doing and writing about and putting out there about you know, the pandemic and, and the the rush to market of the vaccines and the squelching of, uh, of therapeutic alternatives like ivermectin, and which was very, very effective, by the way, against against COVID. But um, anyway, yeah, and he, he said, I'm not in a vaccine. I want safe vaccines that have been adequately safety tested. And the fact was that they weren't being safety tested in that way, that there was never they were never tested against a placebo. And uh, the companies had our pharma companies had liability from uh, uh, that there was no, you know, accountability because they've been exempt from having to pay fines for vaccine injury. So anyway, I decided then that I, I would write something that I hoped would portray his entire life and everything he'd been through uh, in a in a real manner and show how much he'd accomplished in those 40 years as an environmental lawyer and what he was still trying to do and tell the, the behind the scenes story really of of why he got into the public health arena 
and what he was trying to get across. So that's in a nutshell how the book came to be. Were there any surprises when you really got in deep? Uh, you know, sort of. You know, it's again, you were sort of, you were co-workers uh, on these environmental books. You were then friends, and now he's the object of scrutiny for your investigative journalism. I'm guessing you learn things. Yeah, I did, and, and you know, one thing I learned was what a, for lack of a better word, a spiritual guy he was in the sense of. You know, I'm not saying conventionally religious or any of that. He is a, a devout Catholic, but you know that that what he'd been through in his life when he was young. Uh, you can imagine after the trauma of uh, both his uncle and his father being assassinated, he was 15 when Robert Kennedy was killed, and uh, you know he went through really about 20 years of, of really tough stuff, and coming of age at a time when he was uh, he was a, he became an addict. He was a very functional addict. Um, but obviously, you know, he wasn't going to go on to be who he could be if that remained the case. And so, you know, we explored and he was willing to talk about it. You know, he, we sat down many times and, and he wanted the truth about the fact that this is where he'd come from and that, uh, you know, that he, he, uh, he'd had to overcome a lot and he was still part of Alcoholics Anonymous, AA. And in that capacity, it helped, you know, literally hundreds of people uh, get sober as he had, including some of his family members. So, you know, he yeah. didn't want to hide that. And, and that, that was one thing. Yeah, that but certainly, real, you know, real, real sober people, truly sober people in the program are very happy to uh, witness on behalf of the program and to be off. Uh, listen, right. uh, first of all, you, you can't get sober from those kinds of severe illnesses, that particular illness, addiction, without some sort of spiritual component. And it's different for different right. people, but you have to have a spiritual sort of thing. And, and the other thing uh, is, you know, what most addicts will tell you is that helping other addicts actually keeps them sober. So today I stayed sober right. by helping somebody else. And uh, and I have had enough interaction with him to know that he's the real deal sobriety uh, and have been there for a long time. And of course, would not have, you know, I've seen the miracle of sobriety many, many times. He would not be functioning at the level he did without anything like a full, complete recovery from that illness, which he is a great example right. of. So good. Um, that's good. Hopefully the program will, he'll attract people to the program and people understand you can be severely ill and then have a completely flourishing life afterwards which is really why i got into the field that uh, when i was running an addiction program because i saw these people go from dying to flourishing and that was such a fascinating thing nothing else in medicine does that nothing and so there it was so uh, other surprises were there anything about his his positions or i mean for instance one of the things that people i think on the left have forgotten about is his environmental record he's an environmental attorney and has been for many years and seems to be getting no traction around that record uh do you bring that i'm sure you must bring that out in this in this document oh, oh yeah there's many chapters about this you know starting with his because when he when he got sober he went to work for the Hudson River Keeper and the Natural Resources Defense Council, and as a professor at Pace University in New York in, in environmental law, and and you know he was he had amazing success on the Hudson, working with commercial fishermen, you know whose livelihoods had been wiped out really at that point in time by the devastating effects of pollution, and and mounting these mm -hmm. very successful lawsuits, enlisting his students at the university, he got permission for them to, to actually try some of these cases. And they did an amazing job wow. too because he was a hell of a teacher and uh mm. so that was where it started for him 
And then, you know, he began to take on other waterways issues uh, with great success. Um, he went into North Carolina, for example, and where the, this huge conglomerate, Smithfield Foods, was dumping their hog waste into the rivers and, and waterways and, you know, again, wiping out people's livelihoods. And, and there he worked with farmers and he, and he worked with fishermen again to, 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 you know, get some stronger regulations in and, and took on Smithfield Foods in a, in a way that he also took on other big corporations. He was up against ExxonMobil and later Monsanto, you know, and in the Monsanto case, which was fairly recent. I mean, he'd already gotten into the public health stuff, but, you know, he was one of the lead, leading lawyers in a case where, where Monsanto, which had been acquired by Bayer, um, was being sued in a big class action for poisoning uh, these people who'd gone out there and, and sprayed Roundup, uh, which has this chemical mm. called glyphosate in it that was causing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, lymphoma, I mean, an epidemic of it. And so for this first guy that they, they defended, or as a plaintiff, uh, Dwayne Lee Johnson, African-American guy who'd been severely, you know, he's a handsome guy, suddenly, you know, his, his whole life had, had been completely destroyed by, by using this chemical. And they won a, almost a $2 million, $2 billion, excuse me, settlement for him. And uh, and took on some other cases too against Monsanto. So, you know, I mean, his his track record was amazing, and he had about, I think some 500 successful uh, lawsuits. So that's uh, some an accomplishment that I chronicle, you know, throughout the throughout the book, including his work on Indian reservations and in Latin America. I want to get Dr. Victory in here as quickly as possible, but my my one question uh, before I do so is. Do you have any thoughts about how this, how you think this presidential campaign is going to go for him? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I'm, I'm just wondering how you. I, I've heard Cheryl Hines speak, and she's reticent and worried. I'm <laughs> not sure she's fall in for this, but she loves seeing him thrive in it. He seems to be very invested in this process. How do you imagine it's going to go for him? You know, I think actually he's got a decent shot. The reason I say that is because already, I mean, it's been, you know, just two months really since he made his public announcement in Boston and almost out of the out of the box, you know, his favorability rating. Well, first of all, his poll rating was like 20 percent of the Democrats thought that he would be a good candidate and would like to vote for him. And then just a week or so ago, the, the uh, poll was taken about favorability and it, he comes out ahead of both Biden and Trump in that poll. And I think the reason is that he can appeal to all kinds of people. You know, he's he's yeah. a lifelong Democrat and staying as a Democrat, but he's trying to revive the Democratic Party, you know, to, toward the values that his uncle and his father espoused in the 1960s, which is, uh, you know, a party yeah. that really reaches across yeah. party lines. Hey, works with all kinds of folks. He's learned how to do that over the years. He's really good at it. And, you know, he's a fighter for the people and to uh, bring back a, what he calls, rightfully so, a dying middle class and do something about this, you know, merger of corporate and state power that's destroying democracy in this country. Right. I, I find it interesting that two of the significant candidates, he, RFK Jr. and Vivek Ramaswamy, have both zeroed in on this phenomenon that seems to be such a problem in the world today. So here's what I want to do. Uh, I want to uh, dispense with some, we're going to get some business out of the way right away. And I want to bring Dr. Kelly Victory in here so we can Get on with this conversation. So please stand by. We'll be right back. 
I suspect you've seen Susan and I gushing over Paleo Valley products. We love the taste and how well they fit into a paleo-based nutrition regimen. They're delicious, and we use them for travel all the time. But there is more. We are huge fans as well of Paleo Valley's grass-fed bone broth protein. It comes in three flavors, unflavored, vanilla and chocolate. It's a powder you can add to really anything. We add it to coffee literally every day. Smoothies, baked dishes, or just hot water dissolves really easily. The bone broth protein is made with 100% grass-fed and finished bones that are free from pesticides or antibiotics and are slow simmered to extract as much collagen as possible. As we age, collagen breaks down. That's what wrinkles are. And research shows that there are significant benefits to adding a collagen source in your diet. I think it's too much to say it's changed our lives. And Susan is now reporting that after drinking the bone broth for a few weeks, her hair is stronger and longer and nails are stronger too. Try it for yourself. You can order at drdrew.com slash paleovalley and use Dr. Drew at checkout to save an additional 15%. A lot of you have been asking for more information about how to counter the adverse effects of the spike protein from COVID infections and the COVID vaccine. The spike protein is not your friend. Let's just say that. So I'm glad we have the wellness company Spike Support Formula as a sponsor, especially since renowned internist and cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough, who's also chief scientific officer of the wellness company, is one of its champions. There's some very intriguing research around natokinase, which might be a way to take on the spike protein. Listen to this. So start, if you would, with talking about natokinase, how you got to that and where you see its application. So with the viral infection or the vaccines, the spike protein stays within the body and it's found in the heart, the brain, the vital organs, and it's causing problems. The Japanese have been using this for heart and vascular disease now for 20 years. It's safe. It is a form of a mild blood thinner that it dissolves the spike protein nearly completely. Spike support formula is the only product on the market containing natokinase, dandelion root, and a host of other antioxidants all showing promise in helping you protect yourself and your family. To order this unique, specially formulated supplement, go to drdrew.com slash TWC. That is drdrew.com slash TWC. Use code DREW at checkout for 10% off today. President Trump recently issued a warning from his Mar-a-Lago home, quote, Our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard will be our greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years. There are three reasons the central banks are dumping the U.S. dollar, inflation, deficit spending, and our insurmountable national debt. The fact is, there is one asset that has withstood famine, wars, political and economic upheaval, dating back to biblical times, gold. And you can own it in a tax-sheltered retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's right, Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Just visit birchgold.com slash Drew for your free info kit. They'll hold your hand through the entire process. Think about this. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. How much more time does the dollar have? Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. I do not give financial advice, and previous performance is no guarantee of future performance. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew to get your free info kit on gold. That is B-I-R-C-H-G-O-L-D dot com slash D-R-E-W. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. Yeah.
Dr. Kelly Victory, we welcome Dick Russell. Hey, Dick, thanks so much for joining us. I've really, really been looking forward to this conversation uh, since we scheduled it. So uh, appreciative. And, and folks, if I'm looking a little bleary uh, eyed this today, it's because I stayed up way past my bedside, <laughs> bedtime, finishing uh, the last pages of your book. Um, brilliantly done. Kudos to you for this really in-depth uh, analysis or recounting, if you will, of, of Bobby Kennedy's life. I've known Bobby for a long time too, since well, well before the COVID pandemic. And uh, since he announced for the presidency, running for presidency, um, I've been referring to him as the anti-corruption candidate. Uh, and I believe that's a reasonable way to to uh, to call him. But it's, it's so idea. much more than that. He, he, he truly, when I when reading the book was very helpful for me because when I met Bobby, I knew him primarily as an environmentalist. And he and I have not always agreed on, on everything, but he has a remarkably open mind. But the book really gets into it. I started to see him through a different light, not as a vaccine um, you know, a truth teller or as an, just as a, an anti-corruption candidate, um, but really as an unbelievable champion for the underdog. He has a life, as his life, he has always, and that's where I'd like to start this discussion, he has always championed for the underdog, however you choose to define that, whether it's Native Americans, inner city blacks, underprivileged communities, the vaccine injured, uh, fish and birds and wildlife that are under attack, people from, it, he is always, he, he somehow sets a laser focus on that thing, that entity that is either underprivileged or under you know, the onslaught of, of a more powerful force. And he fights for that underdog. So I don't know if you had that same approach, or, but that's certainly in reading the entire book, that's what I was left with. I said, here's somebody who will always look out for the person and speak for those who don't have a voice. Yeah, you know, I think that's really true. And I think it was ingrained in him, you know, from his childhood, because of course, his father used to have these amazing dinner table conversations. He'd come back from, you know, a poor town in Mississippi where people were, you know, the kids were all starving. And, you know, he'd talk to mm -hmm. his own kids about this and he would say, hey, you know, when, when you grow up, I want you to help these people. He took Bobby and, and his siblings, too, to, to Native American reservations like on Pine Ridge and introduced them to the people who were remarkable people in their own right, but, you know, just didn't have anything. And then, you know, when he went through that teenage period of, of real anguish and, and depression and, you know, you can, and, and addiction, you know, he, he took off for, a, for a, a summer. He was like 15 years old and he, he just hitchhiked. He disappeared. He didn't want to be a Kennedy anymore. You know, he was out there on the West Coast uh, riding freight trains and living with hobos and, you know, sharing their meals. And around that same time, a little bit later after that, he started going to Latin America. And he had this amazing mentor named Lem Billings, who had been a very, very close friend of, of his father when, when JFK was president. And all the way back to they were in high school together at, at Choate. And Lem, you know, knew that Bobby was suffering and, and also knew kind of in, intrinsically who he was, that he carried this, I don't know, call it the Kennedy spirit, I guess, you know, that, that, uh, that, that, that really had an important role to play in the future. So he took Bobby to Latin America and had him live on this ranch he had there in Colombia, you know, for, for several summers. And Bobby kept going back. He kept being drawn to, to the people who really had nothing in, in, in those countries. And then, 
you know, later he, he could apply that uh, when he became an environmental lawyer uh, to the people of Ecuador who were fighting in the, in the early 1990s against this oil development that was, again, killing people in these small villages. So he was both born to it and, you know, given those opportunities that opened to him, he would respond because he was somebody who had been through a lot himself and he could relate, he could identify with people who came from those circumstances. No, and I think you do a great job of laying that out in the book, that it's really not just um, his anger at the uh, assaults against the environment, but as much, if not more, the impact on the individuals, on the people, uh, the impact on the Native Americans. And he went to, uh, and I'd like you to talk a little bit, he actually spent time, I think a month uh, in in jail, in, in prison on Vieques, uh, Puerto Rico for an act of civil disobedience. Um, and that was relatively recently. It was uh, just, yeah. I, I think uh, I had met him around that time he, that he had, uh, that he had 2001. Yeah, I had just met him uh, when he when he was spent a month uh, in prison there. Um, talk a little bit about that, because I think it's a story that many people don't know about him. Yeah, it's quite a story. I mean, he tried, he, he became aware that the U.S. Navy was bombing this island, this little island in Puerto Rico called Vieques, and had been doing it for years as a, as a practice target bombing range. And it was really severely impacting the health of the people. And they'd done everything they could to try to, you know, get it stopped by legal means. Bobby tried, went to President Clinton at the time, who he knew, and uh, tried to get him to take action, and, and he didn't. So finally, he felt like, you know, what else can I do except I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, basically. We can't achieve this through legal grounds, although it's legal to do a civil disobedience. So he went there and he, and he brought a couple of friends with him, Edward James Olmos, the actor, and Dennis Rivera, who was a union leader in New York, who'd been instrumental in helping get this landmark watershed agreement uh, accomplished in New York State, along with Bobby. And uh, they went out on the, on the water and... Uh, uh, they got them, then they landed on the, on the island at a, at a time when the bombing was just about to start and uh, for that day. And they were hiding for a while and then ended up getting themselves arrested. And, uh, of course, they were recognized. I mean, you know, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and then they were, uh, I mean, but they were just regular prisoners. You know, they were strip searched and all this. In fact, there's a very, very funny story about almost turning, turning to Bobby during the course of that. And because uh, he, he hadn't counted on that happening to him, right? A major strip search by the, by the police. And he just looked at him and he said, lose my number. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you know, he ended up going to jail. For, if, he was in jail there for 30 days uh, at the time when his, uh, his, his youngest son, Aiden, was, was born, actually. And uh, he got, you know, he had some visitors. And, and uh, I think eventually when the trial happened, it was, uh, Mario Cuomo, who had been the governor of New York and was a family friend, and his son had, was at the time had been married to Bobby's sister, and he came and defended Bobby there, and uh, you know, but Bobby, you know, said it, he he spoke about it in a fascinating way because he was saying, you know, he actually it was a it was a time he could he didn't have to be on the phone <laughs> he couldn't he couldn't be doing his regular life, and he was just hanging out, you know, with these with these prisoners and, and learning about their lives. And he spoke good Spanish, you know, so uh, it was a kind of a, a turning point for him in, in that way. And uh, an experience that he actually came to value greatly. And they won. Well, they I think one of the, yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I think that you, go ahead. 
I'm just going to finish the story, we, which is not right. Away. The Navy finished bombing. Yeah, go ahead. They didn't bomb. Yeah, go ahead. and fi- Yeah. So if, go ahead and finish that. How did that end up? Yeah. So anyway, what happened was they, they they were feeling the pressure and it was because of the people like Bobby and almost and, you know, putting themselves out there, getting themselves arrested. There was enough public attention paid to this that finally the Navy just stopped. And uh, it was uh, the Bush administration wanted to continue it. And, and a couple of years, it took a couple of years, but they they ended what they were doing to the people there. One of the things I think that you did a remarkable job of of doing in the book, Dick, um, and I mean this sincerely, is that you know most people think of uh, of Bobby Kennedy, uh, and perhaps rightly so, as someone of privilege. He certainly comes from a very well known family, a wealthy family. He's had the best of everything in terms of education and and uh, opportunities, but he is incredibly humble. Uh, and he never uh, uses or relies on his privilege to get out of things. He has had incredible adversity, which he has overcome. And I think that it really is um, perhaps because he has such a strong foundation, a foundation that was uh, given to him by by his father, um, uh, Bob Robert Kennedy, and also by his fam, just his family upbringing. But you do a great job in the in the book. It, it relies heavily on quotes from uh, and Bobby and I share this. A, a love of the the classics, um, not only the Greek classics but other great authors. And you you rely heavily in the book on quotes from Upton Sinclair and Langston Hughes and Albert Camus and, um, and lots of other terrific authors. And I think that. It is Bobby's foundation. So many people are lacking foundation, where we came from, what this country was built upon. Um, talk a little bit about that and, and your experience with him and in writing this book, his understanding of the foundation of, of this country, uh, of, of our values, of our civil rights, and how that impacts his, his actions and his belief system. Yeah, well, you know, he's he's uh, he loves great literature. He grew up that way, and he loves American history and all history, and and, and he has a vet, really a strong knowledge of it. I mean, he's always in his speeches today, you know, citing the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, uh, the great the great men we had, the founding fathers. I mean, he he carries that, and he was of course educated about it, you know, to some degree when he when he was a kid. But I mean, it's a, he has a remarkable memory, so. Yeah, he he could he stood there for two hours during his announcement speech in Boston, and and devoted a lot of that to to American history, and and you know and to, and using that as an example, of course his own family too. I mean, think of what he went through when he was a kid, right? He was a uh, he was like uh, ten years old, um, nine I think, when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. Uh, that his his father and his uncle, if they hadn't intervened against the, the military guys and the Joint Chiefs of Staff who wanted to take us into a nuclear war with Cuba, we wouldn't be sitting here talking today. I mean, you know, the world would have ended and uh, as we know it. And so, you know, he applies that. I mean, he gave the speech uh, just yesterday, actually, that I saw about foreign policy. And he spent a lot of it talking about those years and, and what his, uh, he, he said, talked about how his, his uncle, JFK, uh, had said that what he wanted on his tombstone when asked about that some one day said he kept the peace and you know he did and he the speech was given yesterday by Bobby on the you know this the, the uh, anniversary of 60th anniversary of his his uncle's uh, speech to outlaw get get rid of nuclear testing in the atmosphere 
which stopped, you know, in 1963, but there was a test ban treaty. And he equated it to what's going on today you know, with the Ukraine situation. And in the face of, I should, you know, this is a really interesting thing that happened to Bobby because his uh, oldest son, Connor, they, they had these very similar uh, discussions at the, at the dinner table at his house that he had when he was a kid. And they, his father had encouraged and he encouraged, you know, let's, let's duke it out. Let's argue about the issues of the day if we don't see them the same way and, and let's debate it. And so his son, Connor, probably some people have heard this, uh, ended up, you know, secretly without telling his father, going off to Ukraine and fighting, you know, for several months in the Ukrainian army because he believed that that's what was necessary. And his Bobby doesn't see it that way. He sees it like we've got a, you know, that the... He's not a fan of Putin by any means, but at the same time, he feels like, you know, we betrayed a promise to Russia, actually, some years back to not put NATO forces on their border. And so in, the, in that sense, it's not justified, but it is somewhat understandable that Putin did what he did. So anyway, but he's, you know, he wrestles with these kind of uh, personal things as well. I mean, when his son yes. came back, I talked to Connor about it, you know, they're great kids. He's got... He's got six kids, and I've, I know them all. I've interviewed them for the book. And uh, uh, Connor, you know, said that there were times over there that he didn't know if he'd make it back. But yeah. he, was, uh, he yeah. said, you know, I, I had to do it because I believed that. And he said he made such great friends among the people. And when he got back, he called his dad and told him where he'd been. Bobby had just a little bit suspected it because he was seeing credit card bills from not Ukraine, but before that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. like right? a, good, a good hint. But I, I have a couple yeah. questions about the, um, the, Kennedy, the Kennedy sort of ethos and, and what you learned about that. I noticed in the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary, he talked about how amazing it was to go visit Maria at the family compound in Hyannis mm -hmm. because what went on there were these elaborate, lengthy debates and discussions about mm -hmm. helping, be, being useful in right. a way. And I'm guessing a lot of it was to support the underdog. My, my question really is, it, it feels like that runs all through the Kennedy family's sort of uh, heritage and history. Did that, of all things, come from Joe Kennedy, who was quite a scoundrel and a, had all kinds of other sort of nefarious uh, history behind him? Where, where, where did this come in? And do you agree? And is it changing over time? Or is it really this one stable, consistent attitude that they all maintain? No, I, I think it's changed over time. I mean, Joe Kennedy had his own influence on his kids, right? I mean, they used to have these same kind of dinner table conversations and you know, they talked about World War II and fascism and things that were really important during those times. But the thing that was amazing to me, and I've studied Kennedy family before I ever knew Bobby, because I did this big book about the assassination of his uncle, which interestingly, I never even talked to him about. I never even brought up for the first 10 years of our relationship. I, I didn't feel comfortable doing it. Uh, our relationship was around the environment. I knew that it was a painful, terribly painful thing for him. Um, only later, when we can talk about that if you want, when he began to look into it himself and realize there was much more to it than the lone assassin narrative, uh, did we really get into it. But, um, you know, he, he, he uh, what was I going to say here? He, the family, the oh, Kennedy yes. ethos. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when JFK was president, I think the thing that set him apart was that he was, faced with the greatest crisis humanity had ever seen, actually, with the nuclear holocaust on the horizon, 
he, he, was, he was willing to change. He grew in office. He learned things. And so did his father, Bobby's father, about civil rights. They, were, they weren't people who, to whom this came naturally. They didn't really understand at the beginning what was going on with the civil rights movement. But they came to because, hey, they brought people in. You know, they had, there was this legendary meeting in the, in, the, in the White House, you know, where Bobby Kennedy was like, really, you know, they, they gave him a hard time. I mean, people like Harry Belafonte and, and, and right. others in, in the right. black, black community. And he, and he took it and he listened and he learned, you know, and, and eventually became a champion, you know, who was stopping George Wallace from segregation in, in Alabama. And, and uh, so on all these different fronts, um, they were willing to, they were open, they would listen um, and debate. And, uh, and, and JFK, you know, ended up a, truly a peacemaker as a president. He was going to pull us out of Vietnam before that es- conflict escalated when he was killed. And then his brother, Bobby, Robert Kennedy, who I saw speak, give his, uh, I was a, a junior a junior at the University of Kansas. And he, the second speech mm-hmm. he gave after he declared for president, I watched him give. And wow, I mean, Kansas, corn-fed kids, right? I mean, everybody went crazy because he was telling the truth and fighting for them against an unjust war and that he knew right. was wrong. And, and so he became, after his brother's death, a truly compassionate human being. You know, somebody who could, when Martin Luther King was killed in 68, you know, he could stand in front of that crowd of mostly African-American people in Indianapolis while people were starting to riot all over the country. And just by what he said and what he'd been through, make sure that didn't happen there. And people responded to him. So, you know, because he gave a damn and and they knew it. And uh, so that to me was what set him apart. You know, I mean, I would even go so far as to say that that uh, Robert Kennedy was probably riddled with certain aspects, some guilt, because he felt like maybe the things that he'd been doing as attorney general and uh, had, had contributed to, you know, what happened to his brother eventually. Now, I'm, by saying that, I don't mean it was Cuba or the Russians, because it wasn't. Right. It was a, a cabal in this country of, of right-wingers and involved with the mafia and the Cuban exiles and the CIA. But, um, and I know that's for sure. And uh, so, anyway, uh, that's the way I kind of see the, the Columbia ethos. I, well, I will tell you also that Bobby and Bobby and I share a uh, a common background. Also, that we both come from large Irish Catholic families. I have six brothers and sisters myself, and and that Jesuit concept of a, a man for others, uh, that the Jesuit yeah. idea of fighting for the other underdog, for being mm. selfless. Mm. Uh, I, I think that he truly embodies that, and I think that his father did, and I think that that is part of the Kennedy ethos, despite the fact that they are they are humans with human failings. Um, right. They do have that Jesuit concept of a man for others, uh, and and I'm guessing that that really has been his guiding light. I do want to take us fast forward us for a minute here to more present times to the uh, to the COVID uh, debacle. Bobby went, he ended up, um, uh, although I didn't end up on the list, he ended up on the disinformation dozen list that was put out uh, ultimately by the Biden administration as someone who is a purveyor of mistruths regarding that. And that's after, not long after, he had been invited by the Trump administration to actually head up a vaccine safety um, program in the White House. He ended up, that ended up never coming to fruition. And I want you to talk about why it didn't. But the fact of the matter is he was invited 
by then President Trump to head up a vaccine safety program. And he goes from that to being on the the list of the disinformation dozen um, by the next administration. Lead us through that. Talk about that. Yeah, well, it's an interesting story that I that I cover in the book. You know, I mean, he was someone who completely disagreed with Donald Trump on certainly environmental mm-hmm. policy and, and yes. many other things. But um, they did have that in, in common that Trump was interested in in uh, uh, vaccine safety and 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 knew that Bobby was was on that topic. So he did bring him in, and they and they talked. And uh, but what happened with that was, well, I, I don't call it unfortunate. I mean, this was 2016. And uh, all of a sudden, the Trump administration didn't want to talk to him anymore. And this was quick, uh, after they'd even asked him to go out and announce to the press that this is what he'd, he'd been asked to do. And Bobby later found out uh, that right when that came to the fore, uh, the inauguration was soon to happen of President Trump, and that Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company, had given a million dollars to the uh, to the to the you know to the uh, inaugural effort. And then Trump immediately appointed uh, a couple of very uh, powerful pharma people uh, to top positions in his cabinet. So was he sincere in the beginning? I have no idea. But, you know, once Pfizer stepped in and uh, did not want Bobby Kennedy in as, as a vaccine uh, uh, overseer, uh, then that's that's what happened. And then, you know, later on, I mean, the yeah, I mean, once COVID happened, of course, anything Trump did then, as far as the Democrats were concerned, had to be uh, anathema. You know, I mean, we're just not going to believe anything. And it's just this monster in there trying to get us to believe hydrochloroquine might work. Well, in fact, in certain cases, it did work. Um, and But anyway, the, the Democrats uh, definitely pushed censorship of Robert Kennedy and others' views. There was an organization that, that started that disinformation dozen was called the, the Center for Countering Digital Hate. And uh, it was one of the people that ran it uh, was a woman who had written a book uh, back in 2004 about her life as a CIA agent. So kind of makes you wonder, you know, how much uh, input uh, those those uh, people in, in, in power or the deep state, whatever it was, you know, were having over that, that situation. So, so once again, we're seeing, and I've certainly spent the last three and a half years of my life uh, talking about this and trying to expose the corruption of big pharma. Uh, Bobby and I are in lockstep on these issues, but they were fundamentally able to sideline him from uh, heading up that position in the Trump administration and ultimately were uh, certainly complicit in landing him on a list of, of you know, persona non grata, uh, you know, people who are not to be believed and people who are marked marginalized. And it's specifically, by the way, because they're terrified of him. They are terrified yeah. of him for the same reason that Peter Hotez is terrified of him and many others are terrified of him because he knows the facts. He knows the data. He can cite it um, without uh, with nary a note. He knows the studies. Uh, uh, he's talked to the people who've been harmed. Uh, and I think that they are legitimately uh, scared of him, uh, and they will do anything they can. I certainly was egregiously censored um, during this entire uh, fiasco, uh, along with Bobby. But uh, I, I think that let's talk about that. Let's talk about the role of censorship. You do cover that quite a bit in the book. And there's a wonderful quote that I will botch mercilessly because I, I didn't memorize it from Harry Truman. Um, who was talking about the idea that when the government has said it's, it's decided that it is willing to silence the opposition, 
then there's only one place to go from there. And that is for them to lead, uh, to continue and to lead with fear until people are all living in a state of constant tyranny and fear. Um, and that is, you know, that was something that Truman said. Uh, Bobby has been, you know, very vocal about the idea that the good guys, in, in his words, the good guys are never the ones who are trying to censor. It's it's always uh, nefarious and evil forces. Talk a little bit about you know his uh, his experience, Bobby's experience with regard to censorship and how it impacted his role uh, in the vaccine debate. Well, yeah, you know it had been going on for a long time, actually, long before the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. Now he wasn't somebody who who went full throttle into talking about public health all the time. He still was an, an environmental attorney and taking on these cases, taking on Monsanto, as I mentioned. Um, but when he started to get back into it, he started in 2005 with an article that uh, about thimerosal, mercury in, in vaccines that had a lot of scientific backup behind it, but was uh, the first time that the media really, the big you know, legacy media, as it's now called, stepped in and, and uh, tried to say this was bullshit. So anyway, what, what happened then was he got back into it in, in around 2011 and published a book edited a book in 2014 uh, about thimerosal. And, uh, and then no, from about 2010 on, I mean, nobody would let him write an op-ed, uh, do a, even a letter to the editor in defense of himself if he was labeled as a, as a liar or crazy or whatever they increasingly said about him. And so once, the, once COVID began and he began, you know, addressing the fact that uh, perhaps Dr. Fauci was not what he seemed, and that he had, in fact, as Bobby investigated it for the real Anthony Fauci, the book that sold a million copies, word of mouth, by the way, it was never reviewed by anybody, um, never listed as number one by the New York Times uh, book review, even though it was the top best-selling book in the country. So anyway, this was going on, and and uh, and he was learning things as he went along uh, about Dr. Fauci's history with the AIDS epidemic and the AZT drug. Mm-hmm. And what was happening with uh, foster kids who were being subjected to these pretty cruel experiments during that era, and then later, of course, uh, which you know now we finally are coming around to know a lot about, uh, where did that virus come from? And uh, Bobby was on that from the very beginning, and and looking at the fact that, okay, here was this lab in Wuhan, China, Institute of Vi- Virology, uh, the place where the virus suddenly emerged. And uh, here was Dr. Fauci's agency, the National Institutes of Health, pouring money you know, into that lab to do these very problematic gain of function, as they were called, experiments uh, to create man-made, human-made viruses that uh, out of the coronavirus that were, that were potentially lethal. So this was happening. And I'm not saying by this that uh, Fauci you know, intentionally released the virus or anything, but Right. By the time that that happened, and now we're learning, just found out, you know, it's just come out in the last couple of weeks, that the patient zero, as he's always been called, that person in China who uh, was the first one to contract the virus, worked in that laboratory. Right. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. And so, you know, Bobby was pointing out these things and pointing out the fact that perhaps there were legitimate therapeutic alternatives. We didn't have to do Operation Warp Speed, rushing these vaccines that were never tested adequately, that were brand new technology, mRNA, to market and give them to people, uh, mandate them for people, especially when there were these other possibilities. 
So, you know, that's kind of the, the backstory on, 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 on what he was doing. And Kelly, yeah, you mentioned and uh, the use of fear, uh, and, and we, you and I have talked about uh, Matthias Desmet and the mass formation right. theory. I've come upon another physician from 50, 60 years ago, a Dutch physician named Joost Merlou. I hope I'm pronouncing this right, or Merlou. And he goes through very careful analysis. He was a Nazi, um, you know, he was a prisoner in the Nazi, Nazi Germany era and went through a very careful analysis of what he saw, how these things happen, how it happened in Germany, China, Russia, mm -hmm. and the use of fear, systematic use of fear, right. uh, and the the uh, paternalistic uh, in, intervention uh, in the name of doing what's good and right to help everybody without, you know, this sort of weird, <laughs> we know what's right for you, is, is sort of always there as the mechanism that leads to this craziness, and people just don't see where it's going. Uh, he felt actually the only way to fight back is exactly the kinds of conversations we're having to try to cut the strings of um, of all this. But go ahead, Kelly, you were going to ask a question of, of Dick. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, I, I um, all of these politicians, you know, get it, you, particularly, you know, we've seen recently we people talking about, you know, draining the swamp. That's been sort of the byline for the past 10 years. I honestly think that Bobby Kennedy is the only person who could potentially do it because he's the equal opportunity slayer. It's not just the CDC and the FDA he's after. It's the DOJ and the CIA and the IRS and you know, right. all the rest of the uh, of them we had um dick we had him on this show a, a couple of times but in our last conversation i was bringing up you know we he talks a lot about agency capture and i was talking about mm -hmm. the big pharma yeah. capture of our storied medical journals and the fact that we as physicians can no longer go yeah. to what I always considered the oracle, you know, the Lancet, the BMJ, the JAMA, whatever, to read the science. And he said, Drew asked him specifically, you know, what would you do or what idea would you have to, to address that big issue? And I thought his answer was brilliant. He said that he would mm. ask on day one in the Oval Office that he would invite in the editors of all of the journals, uh, these scientific journals, and tell them that if they don't essentially get their act together and rid this corruption, this big pharma connection in their in their uh, publications, that he would, uh, you know, go after them with a RICO, uh, he, using RICO laws. And and I thought it was a brilliant, because it is racketeering. Uh, what, what big pharma is doing in any other, you know, any, if any other industry did this, it would be called racketeering. Um, and so I think mm -hmm. that... Um, in my viewpoint, Bobby Kennedy is the one person who can write this ship because in his own words, the answer to our problems is to get our government to stop lying to us. Yeah, um, God, he it, said that it, one it, thing it, that if we just, that's the one thing he would do, get them to tell the truth and it could really get things back, line, just that could get things lined yeah. up a little bit. So, so start from there, Dick, in terms of the lying, if you talk about the thing that I would, you know, that is probably perhaps nearest and dearest to Bobby's heart that we've been lied to is about the, the truth behind the assassination of his uncle and his father. Um, there's certainly lots of other things we've been lied to about. Do you think, is, is he ready in your mind? You, you talk about it a little bit in the book to really address or get into delve into the reality about those atrocities, um, those particular assassinations. Oh yeah. I think he will. Uh, because of course it's the ultimate personal pain for him, but it's not just yes. because of that. I mean, he knows that the CIA 
you know, had a hand, elements of the CIA, in killing both his father and his uncle. And uh, he's not going to let that go. Um, and it's still dangerous, of course, but he's got really good security, thank God. And, uh, you know, he'll, he'll take that on and he'll he'll do other things. You know, you were talking about the, about the pharma and what he would do on day one. He also said the other day that he would uh, he would he would take he would do an executive order to, to force these big pharma companies not to advertise anymore on TV, because, you know, if you think about it. Yeah, it's a standard practice now, but it never happened before the mid 1980s, the Federal Communications Commission under uh, Reagan passed a bill that would, or not didn't pass a bill, but put in a, a regulation that allowed the, the floodgates to open and allowed the pharmaceutical industry to, to advertise their, their products on TV. So now that's all you see on the TV news, as we know. It's one of the um, most shocking things when people come in from other right. countries. That's one of the first thing they will talk about is like, this This is allowed? This is crazy. How do you allow this? Yeah. Seems it seems completely only wrong. One other, only one other country does allow it. That's New Zealand. We never allowed it. And yet, you know, yeah. now it's, you know, of course the networks, network news isn't going to go after their bread and butter, you know, I mean, right. that would right. be unrealistic right. and to think that that was going to be the case. So, you know, it's, it's all, uh, there's so much that's wrong. That capture, 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 capture. That, that is his theme. And that is what we're talking about. The military is captured. It, the media is captured. The farmers, right. uh, the journals are captured. This is what he wants to unravel, and I just think that's such a smart place to apply the pressure. I agree. Uh, I, well, because I, it, it's it also, reminds it's, me of, it's of Teddy Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. yeah, but it also reminds me of Teddy Roosevelt and the, and the way he kind of saw yeah. through some of the the problems of the day. This is the problem of our time. Dick, you agree with that? I do. And Teddy was the trust buster, right? And uh, uh, he mm -hmm. broke up the broke up the big monopolies, and and, my, and now we've got this. I mean, more monopolies than than ever, right? I mean, the, and he also said he he would call the social media companies in there, you know, and, and talk about yeah. uh, AI and talk about censorship, and uh, and the fact that the government has basically been, you know, in league uh, with Facebook, for example, and and Instagram, mm -hmm. which is owned by Facebook, and kicked him off the platform, right? He's back right. on it now, but. Uh, you know, he, he would really take take these things on. And I think Americans, Americans know, I mean, no, people don't have faith in the government anymore. And we're so divided. So we just, you know, kibitz at each other. Right. And and and, and accuse each other of, of of being completely, you know, crazy and off base and woke or not woke. And this is not the point. I mean, the times that we're living in demand a leader who will get out there and tell the truth and correct this situation where. It's so out of balance. I mean, 500 new billionaires created during the pandemic and, you know, 300 uh, million people or what, not 300 million, but 300,000 some people losing their food stamps. I mean, the inequities are so huge. Right. And, 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 it, and he would take that on. It's also in my it's the consummate nonpartisan issue. Um, you know, people should not believe that because they're watching Fox versus MSNBC or because they watch Newsmax rather than CNN, that they somehow are avoiding it. I think you quoted in the book, Dick, if I'm not wrong, that Roger Ailes uh, told Bobby that 70 percent of their revenues, is that correct? 70 percent of their ad revenues yeah. come from pharma on Fox News. Right. So what do you right. think what do you think the Fox News folks are going to push? Again, they are owned by Big Pharma just as much as Rachel Maddow, you know, and Anderson well, Cooper yeah. are. Uh, you know, this is this is a the consummate nonpartisan issue and I think it's why 
uh, or one of the reasons that that Bobby has resonated so much with people. Um, it's not only because he always fights for the underdog, but because he has been able to reach both sides who have been impacted uh, by the agency capture. Um, and, and I think he, he really fits that in my viewpoint. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, he's been doing it his entire career, just mm -hmm. working with people uh, when, during the watershed agreement uh, days in New York, which went on for years and resulted in ultimately, you know, protection for the, the water supply for everybody in the state. Um, but he, had, he ended up going to work there with a, a, a state legislator who was also a, a beef farmer in upstate New York who hated him. And so was sure Bobby Kennedy was just out to screw them and, you know, take their land away and divert the water from New York City and and, and they ended up, you know, getting Bobby went to visit him on the farm and they got to know each other and, and they worked together to the point where this this fellow who I interviewed, Dick Coombe was his name, uh, he, he cost him his job in the legislature. But he was still stuck in there with Bobby to fight for a better water supply for everybody. And, and this happened, you know, many, many times. Uh, it happened in, in the in the case of uh, Bobby getting together. I write about a chapter about this in the book, too, with with this uh, Republican uh, uh, legislator. Uh, not legislative, Republican businessman, and the two of them got together and uh, who had worked for a company that, that did hydraulic fracturing, fracking for natural gas, and they, they got together and, and they, they got a band in, in New York State because it was, again, impacting the people in a detrimental way. So, you know, he's had a long life of experience doing this. I mean, as, as I said before, you know, visiting impoverished communities and Native American reservations and fighting for them mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. learning how to just work with people to get things done. And uh, he's very pragmatic in, in that way. And he studies. He studies his ass off on the science. Yeah. I mean, the, the Fauci has 2,500-some footnotes. It's extremely well-documented. Yeah, the other thing, I well, heard him also give an answer. Let me just say this, Drew. We, I can't remember what show it was on. I believe it might have been a Fox interview, but he was asked specifically um, if you were to not win the presidency or even win the nomination and a, a Republican president were, were elected, would you serve a role in a Republican administration, say, as an example, as the head of HHS or something? And his answer was, unbelievably thoughtful and I thought selfless. He said, yes, he would have to consider that because he believes he has a lot to offer. And the idea that at a time when we are so divided, everybody's so blessed partisan, I thought it was really said a lot of, again, about his character that he would absolutely openly consider, willingly consider uh, an appointment in a uh, Republican administration, even though he's, he's still a Democrat, because he has something to offer. I hope that he ends up in the, in the White House personally. Um, so I, but I, I just love that he was that selfless that he said, yes, he would have to consider that. Yeah. Well, that's, look, that's kind of what happened with Trump, right? Except Trump backed away from it. Right. He would have done it. Yes. He would have run the vaccine commission, you know, under the Republican mm -hmm. presidency mm -hmm. of Donald Trump, even though he was still a Democrat. So, you know, it's, it's another example of, hey, he's, he's willing if he can make a difference and, and improve the, you know, the, the safety standards of vaccines, whatever it is, you know, he'll do it. Doesn't matter, you know, in terms of who's in power. It's for the people. Well, Dick, um, you've been very kind with your time. We're sort of rolling to a stop here. Kelly, if you could stay on, we'll take a couple of calls. I see some people with their hands up there in the in the Twitter spaces sure. room. Sure. Um, I don't I think can't they're say specific. Enough about the book. Oh. There it is. It's, it's up. Book. Get Dick's yeah, book. Thank you. 
the real RFK Jr. If you're contemplating voting for uh, RFK, this is a a great way to help you make that decision. Uh, Dick has spent a lot of time with him. He knows him well. And I think it's, uh, you know, I, I obviously you're an enthusiast, but I'm imagining given your record as an investigational journalist, it's a dispassionate analysis. Yeah, it is. I've tried to be, you know, straightforward with the book and, and uh, get across who he is. And, and I'm not a cheerleader for him, but uh, I do think he's the man for our time. And I hope that comes across in the book and a lot of different uh, anecdotes that people will find interesting. And thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. And Dick, does thanks the, um, us. does, does the book have a website or anything we can send people to if they want to sort of read, read a little more about it before they head over to Amazon and get it? Well, Skyhorse Publishing has a website, but, and, uh, and then also, you know, Amazon has information about the book. If they, uh, people right. put in the, the name of it, they can get right to it. I, I have some things on my website, but my website's way out of date. So, uh, but I do have okay, a website, Dick Russell, Real. Work, if people are interested in me. <laughs> so there it is. I see again. it down there. We have it in the right-hand corner, dickrussell.org. Uh, it's the real RFK Jr. Thanks, Dick. Appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you again. Thanks. You betcha. And Kelly, I've got a bunch of hands up here, so I'm going to, uh, some people have had their hands up for quite some time, so I'm going to get uh, Russ, I guess, up here and give him a question for you and um, see what he's thinking about. And again, yes, you click on the uh, microphone in the lower left-hand corner, raise your hand to be requested, and uh, once you're on, you um, unmute yourself, so Russ has just done. Go ahead, Russ. Russ? I'm not hearing. We're we not hearing him. Yeah, is that my end? Uh, he's Kate, he's, he's there. I just heard him speak. Something? Try again, Russ. Drew, Drew, can you hear me? There, there we, we are. Go. We got you now. Go ahead. Okay. Hey, hey, uh, love your show, you and Adam. Listen to you a long time. Love line. And my question is about uh, RFK Jr.'s kind of data. His his use of data and, and kind of how he's systematically wrong, and specifically about the autism link to vaccines, and how his unwillingness to back down that was wrong, I made a mistake. And then he goes a step further, and when you get into like Bayes' theorem on conditional probability, and he's talking about how you know people who are on antidepressants are also doing school shootings and committing suicide. I mean, that's Bayes' theorem right there. There's a conditional probability that if you're depressed, you're more likely to be right. on antidepressants. And then if you're depressed, right. you're also going to be suicidal. So it just seems like right. he doesn't have the ability or he's not trusting people or hiring people who can accurately interpret data. So what I, what I noticed about him was, and I'll let Kelly give her response, but he he when he and I disagreed on a topic, I, I realized immediately, oh, this is a lawyer building a case. That's how his mind works. He, he builds a case. And uh, his building of that case sometimes may not include Bayesian reasoning in terms of the raising issues such as, huh, is this cause or is this incidental that people that do these shootings seem also to be on psychotropic medication? Now, I obviously have 
in, involved with so many of these cases, I know damn well exactly how it goes down, that we start piling on medication when the patient becomes homicidal and suicidal, not before. Uh, we, this is all the time. Uh, this is sort of, again, back to your Bayesian uh, reasoning. But I don't think, well, let, let Kelly ask, do you think he would back down if we were to show him uh, evidence that, uh, you know, sort of pulled him out of that thought process? I do. In my experience with him, I do. So here's where I push back. I would say I, I agree with you that there are times that he builds a case as an attorney, that he is very compelling in that way. Uh, and therefore, he, he doesn't think necessarily like a scientist. He sometimes misses or chooses to ignore confounding factors, for example. But I would submit to you that he is not, I am not so sure he is wrong about the connection uh, any longer. And I would not have said this two years ago, three years ago, but I'm not sure that he's wrong about the connection between autism and mercury containing vaccines. If you look at the data and you look at the connection, you look at the increase in autism at the time that the number of mercury-containing uh, vaccines were being given to children. And if you understand that mercury is perhaps the, the greatest neurotoxin that we know of, uh, greater than lead, uh, for example, then it is a, certainly a reasonable thing to look at vaccines. And what's interesting is that the people on the other side of the argument, pharmaceutical companies, the FDA, the CDC, uh, the pro-vaccine crowd, of which I was one for the better part of my career, we're all saying, oh, it's not that. We know it's not vaccines. We can't tell you what it is, but we are sure, we're damn sure it's not the vaccines. Really, if you're damn sure it's not the vaccines, you better come up with some other credible ideas. What do you think is causing this uh, this huge uptick in in uh, autism and other uh, neurocognitive disorders? So I'm not sure that he's wrong on that. Um, I have found. Well, but are, my, are my we defining these differently? I, I mean, going back to like, if you, I mean, Drew, you talk about this a lot. Like in the '40s, yeah. certain behavior it had a different term. So are we... No, I know. It, yeah. Yeah. Are you not... I, no, that's part of it. That, that, that is part of it, Russ, that we are we are diagnosing it, picking it up, categorizing it, calling it something. Uh, and that's one of the, the... Again, this is back to your Bayesian thought process, which is that's one of the things that people are looking at. Are we just better at detecting it and categorizing it and, and calling it something rather than just, hey, that dude is quirky, that dude is different, as we used to say in the 40s. But go ahead, Kelly, finish your thought. Well, I was going to say, I think there's some component of that, but I think it would be, uh, I think you're remiss in believing that it's all related to that in the same way um, that, yes, we have normalized the concept of gender dysphoria recently, but something else has happened. Something else has changed that has allowed the gender dysphoria to go from a fraction of 1% to now 25% of all kids in high school think that they might be the wrong gender. Okay, something else has happened. And it's what is that thing that is likely environmental? Again, Bobby Kennedy's, even if you're willing to ignore the autism component, he points out, rightly so, the massive increase in autoimmune issues. When I grew up, I didn't know a kid with asthma. 
I didn't know a kid with a peanut allergy. We didn't, we aren't defining those things differently, yet there's a massive increase now in allergies, massive increase in childhood asthma, massive increase in psoriasis, eczema, other autoimmune issues, food allergies. We aren't defining those differently. Autism is kind of tough because yes, we have come to a different understanding of that quirky behavior, if you will. But peanut allergy, asthma, been pretty clearly defined the same way for decades and decades now. What's causing and, the increase? Right. And and uh, even though Kelly and I disagree on some of these issues, we all agree on the fact that this this something, I've seen crazy shit in the medical literature in the last three years and, and crazy yeah. behavior that I'd never seen anything like this in my entire career. And so this, this capture idea is something I think we can all sign on to as something that mm -hmm. may be adulterating what we're all seeing. And we'd like to get that piece fixed so we can at least go back to trusting the literature that we do have. Thanks, Russ. I've got a and bunch I of hands that, up here, so I've I, got to get to this. Just, just while yeah. you're getting the next person up there, Drew, I was going to say, I mm -hmm. think that's, and, and I'm not blowing, you know, saying that I know it is the vaccines. I'm kind of in the middle where I feel right now, Drew, is like I've been duped as a physician and I no longer trust the journals. I no longer trust what I, I've I know. Been Listen, I got the same I, feeling. It, I'm it, telling it, you, this, so, I've got, I, I've saved this one journal. I saved this one annals. Did I hold it up for you to show you? There was one annals that it's turned the corner. This one journal on ah. one day suddenly started talking about interesting topics that I had not seen one mention of in three years. And that 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 never happens in the medical literature. Medical literature is a back and forth. And so something is right. terribly, terribly wrong. It has been it's for a little while here. And so the fact it, that that can happen tells me that it has been happening. Right. Once you find out whether it's a, that a spouse or a trusted friend or that, you know, the, the medical literature has lied to you, then you start questioning mm -hmm. everything. Then you start saying, what else is yes, a lie? Yes. What else yes, have you told me? And that's the quandary we are in as physicians. So yeah. I am just now willing to take a more uh, circumspect back to look at things and saying, maybe I've been wrong about this. Maybe I, maybe Andrew Wakefield yeah. was onto something and I at least owe it to I, myself and to my patients to explore that. I, I always like, uh, you know, reconsidering everything and keeping an open mind, but I'm really trying not to go all the way there. I've been arguing with Rob <laughs> Schneider about this for many, many years and he keeps holding my hand to the fire. Stephen, go ahead. Oh, hi. Um, my audio was, uh, down a little bit. Um, uh, I hope you can all hear me. Yes, we yeah, got we gotcha. you. Okay, the uh, I'll tell you my favorite Bobby Senior story, which uh, is going to be short. But uh, you know, Bobby Senior was a very different person in 1961 when he became Attorney General than he was in 1968 mm -hmm. when he was doing the civil rights mm -hmm. uh, stuff and during his campaign. During '61, they they sort of put him in charge of handling MLK Jr. And the two didn't like each other at all. And right. Uh, right. Bobby Bobby Jr.'s main criticism of MLK Jr. was that he was a rich, rode on the coattails of his father, who was MLK Sr., who was known very, very well at the time. MLK Jr. was not, believe it or not. And uh, uh, MLK Sr. was a, a big uh, preacher and had been for decades, and everybody knew him. They didn't know his son. And so Bobby just, he said he was wet behind the ears. He was a, 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 a guy who just, was writing on his dad's money and fame. <laughs> Sound familiar? Okay. 
Now think about that. <laughs> somebody has yeah, so little yeah. self-awareness that he would criticize somebody for that. This is coming from Bobby, yep. Bobby, you know, Bobby Senior. Okay, so there's 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 a, a little bit of a of a hint of of that kind of thing. He he grew out of some of that. To give him credit before he died. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, my problem with with Bobby Junior is, uh, yeah, he's a he's a lawyer and he's an advocate and he isn't a data driven person nor a scientist. And I, when knowing what I I'm going to stay away from COVID, but knowing what I do about HIV and AZT. Uh, his comments about Christine Maggiore and the idea that AZT caused the AIDS epidemic yeah. really yeah. brought me, yeah. took me yeah. back to the eighties and, and it, I wanted to strangle the man. And if he can't yeah. get away no, from you some heard of that, me, if you heard me talking about yeah. it with him, I, I got into it a bit cause I, I was there yeah. when the, when we literally at the County hospital, when we opened the boxes of AZT and right. we were so thrilled, we had something something yeah, to offer right. these men and and it really started the process oh, of us utilizing deploying antiviral therapies and you have to start somewhere it was not a great yeah. drug it had all kinds of problems but right. my yeah. god and, and and it was bob guccione that was we were fighting he, I, I literally at the time was fighting him i had him on love line back then i was fighting the guy because he was killing my patients they were afraid to take any medicine and if i could buy think about it at that time if i could buy somebody four months or six months i mean they, when they right. came in at that point and they came in with their first pneumocystis pneumonia they were dead in six months period end of story mm-hmm. if they came in with yeah. ks with capaces it was quicker and mm-hmm. if we could extend that four months maybe now we've got a year during which time other medicines would come forward and that is exactly what happened that is exactly what happened That's- exactly what happened and you know things things are not perfect they start out uh, bad uh, or they start out with problems and we found out later yep. that azt only works until the virus gets around it so it's great for maybe six months so it's great at the end of the disease uh but it's not so great if you start it early and there's a, a wonderful uh, lesson about induction. You know, if you have a, gr- a drug that works great in one group of patients, can you generalize and give it to everybody? And the answer is no. Sometimes mm-hmm. nature bites you in the rear, and that's exactly what happened with these right. You have to that's understand right. that every drug, as Louis Goodman used to teach us in my medical school, every drug starts out as a panacea, and then it becomes a plague, and people say, oh, my God, we never should have approved this ever. <laughs> and, and then that's finally, so as you learn how to use it, it, it ends up as a perfectly pedestrian pharmaceutical. Somebody yes. has to work in the field, like Bobby Kennedy, has got to understand this stuff before he runs for president yeah. on it. Yeah, I, I will. We Kelly and I will try to get, bend his ear a little bit. The point is well taken, and, and you know, I, I a lot of the stuff I've been seeing lately that I've I've sort of uh, been upset about is in this general area, you know, where things have to go yeah, all I, one way and all the other way. It's ridiculous. Well. And what I would hope, what I would hope if Bobby got into office is that he will take, he is smart enough to surround himself with people to look into each of these things. You know, I I don't want him to be defined. And my goal with bringing Dick on was to, to keep Bobby Kennedy from being defined by his stance on, you know, vaccines, by his stance on the environment, by his stance on any one Mm -hmm. thing. He has a very, very long uh, and interesting career. Career, um, and I think that he is quite open-minded. So hopefully, uh, once in office, the like, he's certainly not going to be heading up the vaccine safety component of, of his administration. Um, he would surround himself. I would certainly hope. 
by by smart people who are scientists, who are data driven, who will look at these things uh, on, in each particular component. He and I have disagreed vehemently on a lot of the environmental stuff. Um, I am nowhere yeah. near the environmental zealot that that he has, and we disagree on a lot of that. Um, I think, uh, but again, hopefully he will not be defined by any one of these things. He is passionate right. for we sure, have the and same. probably over. You know, yeah. oversteps his bounds. Over, so we have the things. same. We get. We get have this exact conversation about fracking and climate. I'm sure too. But Stephen, uh, yes, um, yeah. you're. You sound like you. You're. You know, sort of like me and Kelly. And one of the craziest things that happened during this pandemic, in my estimation, is that physician judgment became something that was not allowed. <laughs> The one thing that we are yeah. trained for is the application of our judgment, and we were not allowed to use it or say it, whatever the judgment dictated. Right. I, I'm wondering if you have any headlines from what your experience was from the pandemic. Uh, well, it's uh, what Oscar Wilde used to say, which is the plain and simple truth is rarely plain and never simple. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. that that turned out to be uh, true with the, the pandemic, uh, uh, a larger topic than we then I, I want to talk about I, I mean I could we should have a, a whole thing on the pandemic but the the real message of the pandemic is uh, the vaccine was crappy like AZT but uh, seat belts you know percent of people who die in accidents are wearing their seat belts that is not a, that's not a good reason for not wearing your seat belt so uh, you have to approach it and I think most people understand a kind of uh, probabilistic approach to many things they do many things that they know aren't perfect and that will only increase their chance a little bit. Like if you were in a poker game and you got a chance to see the other guy's cards 10% of the time, would you do it? Uh, yes, you would. Of course you would. <laughs> mm -hmm. would. Would that keep you from losing the pot and cashing in? No. Sometimes you'd have to cash in anyway. But anything that gives you a slight advantage, like uh, an injection of anabolic steroids or something, that's why those things are illegal, because it gives you the 5% advantage. So we have to start thinking that way or we have to start teaching the public to think that way because that's the way all good doctors think, I think. And uh, uh, I'll, can, can I give, you, give one more example? Here's a little bit out of the, the field. Bobby uh, Jr. believes that his uncle was, was killed. And when you ask why, the answer he gives uh, includes things like, well, the House Select Committee, which, which met long after the Warren Commission, decided that it was a conspiracy. And if you know anything about the House Select Committee, the reason they decided it was a conspiracy is they had a Dictabelt tape that showed one extra noise, which they decided was a gunshot, which means two shooters, which means a conspiracy. And what Bobby has not has missed is that since then, they found that that Dictabelt came from a couple of minutes later, and that extra impulse was not an extra shot, and it's irrelevant, and now we're back to one shooter. But Bobby did not put that in his hat of evidence. So there you have another... Uh, uh, another confirmation bias instance, if you know what I mean. And uh, yes. I don't trust a guy like that without a flexible mind to be president. Okay, fair enough. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate those comments. Uh, AJ, one, we'll get one more speaker in here if you don't mind. Um, AJ. Sorry, guys, I'm not going to have a chance to get to everybody, but uh, AJ, unmute yourself once you were up there. Um yeah, interesting. This is the this is the back and forth that I look forward to all the time. This is very interesting. AJ, uh, unmute your mic and you're good to go. Maybe it's not going to happen. If you can't handle unmuting the mic, I have to throw you back into the sea. 
Speaking of saving the fish, which we've been talking about today. <laughs> All right, my friend. Sorry about that. Uh, and this is George. And we'll get George in here. All right. Kelly, do you, you think that uh, RFK Jr. Yeah, George, one second. Yes. Do you think he would be interested in being on uh, Gutfeld show? I don't, but I cannot speak for you him. Don't. But okay. I don't think I don't think that that's a kind of platform. Um, I think he's he's more serious than that, and I think he wants to get his. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I don't because uh, Vivek was on that, there, and I. Vivek, I thought, yeah. improved. It's that made him look a little more uh, approachable. But I just, I think Greg wants to do a one-on-one -on -one interview with him. If you can send that message in, if he's up for that, is he sure. open to that kind of thing? Sure, I, I, okay. I'd certainly let him know. I, yeah, and I, as I said, I can't speak for him. I'm not his his mouthpiece. But right. I, I just, if you're asking my personal opinion, I don't think that yeah. uh, that being on the Gutfeld show is something that would float his boat. Okay, um, cool. but cool. Uh, but I'm happy to throw it out there. I'm just uh, interested. I thought I thought it'd be interesting in there. Number one and number two, I that is the opinion I was asking for. But do send in the word that he is, I believe, looking to sure. do a one-on-one -on -one with him. George, go ahead and uh, unmute yourself there. Uh, thank you, Doctor Drew. Appreciate your time. Uh, yeah, long time fan. Uh, another fan from uh, back in the Loveline days. I used to listen to you, and uh, I worked in industrial maintenance uh, for a manufacturer. And we'd have you on in the shop, listening to you guys around second shift when I came in. There you go. My, my, that was so, how, that's, was, that's how we were listened to at work usually with some headphones yeah. on. <laughs> and um, my, my sort of a question comment here, um, really addressing the problem, I think in um, it's, it's not just, I think in medical journals and the medical side of, of things, but I think in, in, basically in a lot of the science journals across the board is that we've almost kind of developed this sort of um, calcification, uh, like a hardening in ideas where um, they can't be challenged. Certain things can't be brought up. And I'm not talking about the crazy, you know, out there kind of flat earth or anything like that kind of stuff. I'm, you know, I'm talking about general science stuff overall, um, my studies was nuclear engineering in the Navy. And when, uh, when we were in there, we were, we were learning stuff as we went. And there was a few things that still had kind of big questions around it. Now we ran reactors, they ran just fine. They worked just, you know, like we wanted them to. And uh, we ran them very safely, but uh, there was still questions around some of the science in there. And then, you know, since then some better theories were developed and everything along the way, but there was always a discussion there. And as time went on, I kind of noticed I'm in my mid forties. Now I was, you know, obviously like around 18 when I joined the military. And what I, what I kind of noticed is it's almost like a cult like mentality, like a religion, sort of this religious thought that's kind of arisen. Um, when somebody, um, the scientist has become the new priest. If, if that's, uh, mm. you know, that that's kind of the, the thought process. If I, if I challenged anything in my own research on uh, radiation types, I was uh, exploring some uh, shielding ideas actually. Um, and I was exploring like our own sun, the kind of radiation. This was, you know, years after my um, military training. And then after I got my degree and I was looking into it and it made me start to question some things because I realized we didn't understand this giant, you know, 
ball of burning hydrogen in the middle of our solar system very well. <laughs> and we had a lot of questions yeah. around it still, but we took a lot of that for granted. And, and instead of um, saying, okay, we're going to continue to explore this, we don't know. Yeah. You know, it's okay to say, I don't know. I feel like there's not enough, I don't, you know, I don't know in, in science nowadays and saying like, hey, we're exploring this idea instead of it becoming yeah. so set in stone. I mean, um, my yeah. own my own mother. Here's what I think. You know, I listen. I, yeah. I it's a really interesting, really interesting point. I I just was reading a book called The Eighth Day of Creation: Makers of the Revolution in Biology. It was really sort of all these great minds that came over from Europe during the Second World War and established themselves in MIT and Caltech and Princeton and how they were thinking, the, the open-mindedness, the problem-solving, the risk-taking. I thought to myself, oh, yeah, that I was sort of trained in that kind of science back in the 70s. It does not exist anymore. And at the core, science is taught more like a language lesson or, or some sort of vocabulary um, you know, course. Back in the day, it was it was all about problem solving and math and trying to predict sort of things like the behavior of clouds is why I always think of it. We're trying to predict sort of general things that really you can't predict with that kind of certainty. And I believe we have trained people. I, listen, I think if you told most, asked most physicians, what is the scientific method? They couldn't even tell you that. Right. And so it, it is. that's where it's sort of starting for me. And I agree with you. The outcome is there's a certain amount of, and cult is a word I've thought to myself over the last 10 years or so, lack of questioning, lack of humility, lack of ability to say, I don't know. Kelly, what do you think? Well, I think the mark of a good leader to me is someone who, in the face of new data, new evidence, new mm. new in, in, new input, is able to change his or her mind. If somebody doesn't mm -hmm. do that, if they have a premise and they are faced then with new information and they are not willing to incorporate that and change their position or change their opinion, then it's one of two things. Either they're not very bright, either they're just not very bright, or... They have an ulterior motive. They're being motivated by something other than truth. It's one or the other mm. because a good leader, mm -hmm. and I don't care if you're leading a company, if you're leading a country, if you're a physician, if you have a premise, some, a place from which you begin, a factual belief, and then when faced with uh, information that should that is contradictory and you are unwilling mm -hmm or incapable of incorporating that and determining whether or not your position should change, you're just dumb or you're bought off or you've got something else going on. And so right now well, we are you know, left to believe that our leaders, yeah. either it's one or the other, are they that dumb? Yeah. Are you trying to tell me Anthony Fauci is that dumb or is it that he actually is owned by something else? And and you really, there's not much in, in between. Uh, because good leaders right. do change yep. their position. And those leaders, if they're physicians, need to change their positions. So uh, Adam Carolla, who George alluded to, who did Love Lang with me for years in the 90s, and he, had, he and I do a podcast now, he, he distills it down to, to two words. And Kelly, this is exactly what you're talking about. He just looks at somebody and he goes, stupid or liar? Stupid or liar? Right. That's it. Which is it? Right. Stupid that's, or liar? That's now, unfortunately, exactly what I'm we live saying. in a time. Yeah, I, I know it's exactly what you're saying. It's, it's great to hear it coming back at me from somebody else. And the 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 fact, though, that we can't even discuss, though, in today's world, differing intellectual capacities and talents. That that to me is really 
we need to be realistic about what each of our abilities are and our talent. I don't have talent in certain areas, and I don't have ability if, in certain areas, and if, I'm not if you the smartest think about, person in the world. Right. If you think about you know the thing that causes most small uh, recreational aircraft crashes is when the pilot yeah. is incapable of rectifying information that is different in what they are seeing visually versus what they're seeing on their instruments a difference between and whether or yep. not they you know they are taught to trust your instrument panel do not trust because you cannot mm -hmm. trust what you are seeing you are disoriented trust one and when they are incapable of rectifying those two things that are contradictory they drive it into the ground and this is yes. and this is what's happening is that we have got to teach people again that life is not simple it is, it is not simple yeah. and the data are changing all the time. And if you are not able mm -hmm. to, you know, to be in that OODA loop, observe, orient, decide and act, observe, orient, decide and act, that is what keeps fighter pilots alive. If you cannot take that fast incoming changing data and change your position, whether it's your position in air, in the air or your position in terms of your opinion on things, if you can't do that, quickly and in real time, the results can be disastrous. And we've got to teach people to, back to that critical thinking, the OODA loop. How do you stay alive to fight the next dogfight? Well, I think this is a great place to wrap up. You and I will go talk to Bob Kennedy and see if we can uh, soften some of his attitudes about certain things, you know, certain things we disagree with him on. And I, yes. my bet is he will. I, that's sort of my sense of him. Is well, I think so too. That's my sense of him too. Be, yeah. Yeah, so we'll we'll, we'll see. Uh, but Kelly, thank you for uh, coming on afterwards here and, and taking some calls with me, and for uh, bringing us. To, was Dick Russell your suggestion? Did, did is that how we got to him? Yes, and I and uh, I think I right. I just reached out to his uh, to to his publicist because I was aware of the book, and and I wanted to highlight. Uh, as I said, I, I'm not plugging for Bobby Kennedy necessarily. I just want uh, people to see that there's more to this individual, and I'm happy I'm happy to have this conversation about other candidates, but that there's a lot yes, more yes, to we'll him than his particular stance about COVID vaccines and the fact that he's been marginalized uh, because of some of his opinions opinions and statements about the vaccines, there's a lot more to him um, when you're talking about somebody who's potentially, you know, running for the highest office in the land. And I just wanted to highlight that. And I think the book, the book does a great job of that. And I think uh, Dick Russell's a good investigative journalist. I think it was very interesting. Tomorrow I will take on more callers uh, and we're going to have Bobby Chacon in here. He's a, he created the FBI's retrieval, underwater retrieval program. Did He's he confirm with you? Uh, not me, but I heard he, I heard he was coming. But okay, maybe that may or I mean that's a maybe. Bobby's and then great callers, guy. and then next yeah. week when Kelly comes back, Tom Rents uh, returning. Oh wait, he just said he could. Okay, like good. this minute. Okay, good. Tom <laughs> Rents returning is the attorney, and uh, he has some insight for us. We're going to speaking of the funding of the Wuhan laboratory. We're going to get more data mm -hmm. out of him about what is behind all that. He's been studying that for a bit, and uh, Kat Lindley on July fifth, and. Yes. Uh, Yes, Vivek Ramaswamy, John Bowden. You see the numbers, the dates, and the names up there. Uh, we will see you all tomorrow at 3 o'clock Pacific time. And Kelly, next Wednesday, 3 o'clock Pacific. Thank you so much for joining us. Sounds good. Thanks. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. 
I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. 